Hello everyone, I'm Phil Svitek, and from time to time, you know that I love bringing on various people to interview, discuss various topics that are on my mind, and sometimes there are people that I don't know, you know, that, that we would all love to talk to, and then other times it's people that you may not know, but are just incredible, and one such person that I've continued to uh, get to know more and more over time, and just am just absolutely intrigued um, by everything that she's got going on is my friend Nisa. Um, so I want to, you know, just even stuff like that, I don't know, like you're in the entertainment business, you're an amazing producer, but like, obviously that is just such a um, terrible way to like introduce you. So give me the kind of like the, the, the scope of everything that you're doing at the moment for the people. It's a good way to introduce me. I am a television producer. I'm a longtime TV producer. I'm also, I consider myself to be a storyteller. So I think that the storytelling aspect of my life has crossed into multiple genres and aspects in addition to producing documentaries and unscripted TV. For the most part, I'm also currently writing my memoirs about my wild and crazy life in the 90s. And I find that it just all kind of feeds into each other. The better writer I become, the better storyteller I am. The better I am at telling stories, you know, through video, television, film, the better I write. So that's kind of the crux. I like to bring um, emotion to the people. Mm. I like to make the people laugh. I like to make the people cry. I like to make the people think about themselves. And I think in addition to that, but it's not totally separated, I came into the industry as a talent agent. So I've always had a foothold in cultivating, um, identifying talent, cultivating talent, and trying to lift them into a platform where their story gets told. Yeah. And what's, you know, the the sort of like light bulb moment, if you will, for me, I was like, you know what? I really want to talk to Nisa about this because so you're on TikTok. And out of all the things that you could be doing on TikTok, you are using food as a way to exemplify kind of what's going on with the economy. And I think to me, a definition, I don't think it's the only definition of an artist is like good observation as well as practicality. And to me, you fit both of those things because you're able to, you know, I mean, how many people sort of look at that? I mean, everyone complains like groceries are going up, groceries are going up, but you're going so myopic with it in a way that is so nuanced and, 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 and as you said, like tells a story. So give me background on this, like explain to, you know, uh, I'll, I'll link to, you know, at least a few videos in the description for people that can go more directly, but like, how did this like come for you? And like, how did it take off? Cause I mean, you're quite the, I don't know, micro influencer as far as this is concerned. It's kind of crazy. So I, it's party in part i'm writing this book and i've been told okay you need to have a social media presence and my instagram was like pictures of my grandparents whatever that's not changing so i'm like all right i'm gonna use tiktok for this new phase but what had really been churning in my mind is that I, everyone's talking about economics right we're all talking about, we're all feeling the squeeze the prices of houses are just exorbitant so many people in my generation are like i'm never gonna be able to buy a house rent is exploding and then food like this thing that we all eat and food is culture also so the food prices like are just up exponentially they're up 40 percent groceries are up 40 41 percent in the past year roughly and so i just kept churning because as a consumer of social media i started to realize how differently 
people were showcasing food. Something that I have always really been into because, you know, like most people in LA, I consider myself a bit of a foodie. So I started watching these trends happen. I'm like, this is not by accident. Like, I started seeing the correlation between what was comforting times. We can go pre-pandemic, pandemic, and now, which are, you know, although it's like only a five-year span, those are very different times for a lot of us economically. And I started to realize that people were getting into what I call these recession core foods. So in true needs of fashion, I smoked a joint and I put these thoughts together like, in the middle of my work day, to be honest, I took a couple, but I had been thinking about it for a while. At first, I was like touching on like resumes and what to do and how to like network during this time. And I kept touching upon the recession. But to me, the through line was really food. I just didn't know how to express it. So I sat down and made a three minute video on TikTok. And I had, I don't know, about 80 followers at the time. I hadn't even told anyone I was on TikTok. And in about 24 hours, the video had been viewed a million times. And what's crazy about that is the feedback and the conversation that followed and people started talking about their culture and food and how they knew that we were in a different financial space. Like one of the ones that stuck with me the most is this guy from Puerto Rico saying that like avocado toast was what they ate in Puerto Rico when there was no food. And now avocado toast is something that's being marketed to a millennials as, as the reason why they can't buy a house. So then you really think about it, a piece of bread with some avocado spread on it. Yeah, that's like a, that's close to a nothing sandwich. It's nutritional, but it's, you know, it's not your three food groups or whatever that you're looking for in a meal. So the conversations that came out of that um, continue to educate, influence me. Literally that video was over a month ago. I can still make content off of the comments because it continues to get more and more hit like two weeks ago it got a half a million more views I don't know like who linked it or where it came from but it touched upon something and it helped me find a community of people who maybe had been thinking or feeling something similarly but it gave us a place to like really have this conversation and dialogue yeah no I mean that's that's very astute and certainly like I'm I'm always fascinated by those connections, right? Like, um, you know, one of the things for me, I took a cooking class by a native chef and they were doing fry bread, which is a very controversial food in the native space because, I mean, as you're talking about with avocado toast, you know, for, for natives, that was a survival. Like, that wasn't a joyous meal. And so now there's that reclaiming of fry bread as like, hey, this is our own and has a history but also understand that the history is extremely dark. Um, so, yeah, and I think too oftentimes, you know, we don't look into those things, you know, we just kind of accept it as is and jump aboard these trends. So to to have that pause and really look at the microcosm of it, um, you know, I was one of the recent videos, or I don't know if it's recent, but recently for me in terms of what I saw was like, you were talking about generic brands, Um in that aspect of it. And I thought that was fascinating. So can you like just kind of recap that portion of it? Yeah. So one of the things um, I'm, I'm older. So growing up in the 80s, we had generic foods like really took off like late 70s, like mid to late 70s, early 80s. So there was a time that you would go in the grocery store, like brownie mix would just say brownie mix. Cheese said cheese. Milk said milk. 
where, you know, under Reaganomics, the economics our parents were dealing with were so severe that like they could not afford name brand food, which is something that we kind of take for granted. So food became just generic. Like you couldn't buy Del Monte, you know, you were waiting around the corner to get gas. So you just had to get the absolute basics. And what I, then I had to ask myself, well, whatever happened to generics? Like people are pretty poor right now. What's, what are generics? And with that, in the back of my mind, I'd always said, Trader Joe's is just capitalizing off of generic food. These are like off brand. This is Trader Joe's is putting their name on food and making it feel as though we're getting something elite when we're actually eating generic food, meaning we're not eating out of the major brands of foods that you would see stocking the shelves of other stores. So I did a deep dive and I looked into it and I researched what the marketing was when the turn happened. And essentially I realized that generic foods had not gone away. They're now just called private label and they're bigger than ever. I think Trader Joe's becomes one of our largest examples. You've got all these social media accounts, Trader Joe Halls, this, that, and the other. But people talk about Costco all the time, right? Costco is a private label food, which means that they're just serving us generic food. You know, what are we investing in? So some of the same things that got people through some of our rough economic times that we were, you know, absolute recessions are still happening right now. But through the marketing of food, it's been packaged in a way that we feel like we're getting something elite, even though we're not getting a quote unquote name brand. Like Trader Joe's has elevated itself to become its own brand. But let's be for real, it's generic food. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, do you sort of like for me, when the pandemic hit, one of the things that I did was look to history for various patterns of like, how can we navigate, you know, this current time? Because, you know, we've dealt with plagues and things like that. Sure, the circumstances are different in a way, but there's patterns to be gleaned. And I just kind of wonder, like, you know, as far as it resonating, do you feel like there's a sense of hope that you're offering or at least like uh, at least a roadmap in the chaos? Um, or I don't know, how do you perceive it? Perceive it as um, there is a sense of hope that, you know, for a lot of people, this, you know, what's happening with us economically, dealing with plagues, like this is, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. And I think for a lot of people, they may be experiencing financial insecurity for the first time in their life. Young people entering the workforce, you know, people that are just getting their careers done. What I'm trying to say is that there's really kind of nothing new under the sun and that we can reclaim what has gotten previous generations through. And to, to me, that gives me hope. So I look back and I'm like, mm, oh, beans are trending. Well, guess who ate a whole lot of beans growing up on a one income household with four kids? This girl, okay? Ramen noodles are trending. Well, guess who ate a whole lot of ramen noodles trying to get through college? This girl. So a lot of these foods that people are turning to because they may be experiencing financial insecurity, they're experiencing the squeeze on the dollar, are honestly comfort foods. And so then you're getting into sharing recipes and you're laughing about, oh my God, did you used to make cinnamon toast? I used to make cinnamon toast. So I think it's like finding the community and finding the humor in what's happening and the knowledge and understanding that some people, a lot of people have had financial and food insecurity and yet we've always made it through. Yeah, um, that's a good way to look at it. And so now I want to kind of expand it out into the entertainment business because, I mean, if nothing else, it feels, and you can correct me on this, um, 
part of for a lot of younger people, it feels like everything's just conflated like all at once, right? Like maybe if there was like, you know, problem A plus problem D, you know, there was some way to navigate this, but it feels like it's coming from all sides. And certainly, you know, those of us who work in entertainment right now is a very unknown time, right? And so you have witnessed firsthand kind of um, the writer's strike back in, you know, the 2000s, the late 2000s. Um, so you can kind of look at that. But like, can you talk about at least from that, you know, the writer specifically, and we can expand it out to the other stuff, but, you know, the similarities and differences between then and now? Yes. Well, I would actually preface a little bit before that. So I entered the industry in the late 90s. I was an agent in the late 90s into the early 2000s. In 2001, we had a SAG strike. And that was the first time that we were arguing for what was known as new media. So new media back then, we were not even, we had just gotten computers in our offices. So the new media expansion was really like, okay, well, what do we pay actors because their films are going to be shown on airplanes? Um, And it was unquantifiable. And so was cable because this was the cable expansion. So most people still didn't really have cable. Like you you had it if you had a little bit of money, but everybody didn't have it. So we're talking about these non-quantifiable entities and the union was trying to figure out, well, what, how do we make sure that we're negotiating in good faith that actors are compensated, okay? So um, to me, that was the beginning of what was felt like a union busting attempt. And what these global advertisers, I was a commercial agent at the time, but these global advertisers did was they pulled every union commercial off the television. So they bled their union members dry with no residuals. Sound familiar? And in addition, instead of shooting anything new, they just pulled old non-union commercials off the shelf. So they bled their union members dry and forced them back to the table. So that is a, is akin to what's happening to writers today that they have now ostensibly bled the writers dry. So in 2007, the next union strike that I um, saw, again, new media was somewhat non-quantifiable. We were still, uh, Netflix was sending us DVDs in the mail. We didn't, we didn't know how sustainable that was. We were still the blockbuster generation. So you had this thing like, oh, everybody's going to be watching stuff on the internet. Nobody was watching stuff on the internet yet, okay? You could like pay $30 an episode for something on iTunes, but it just hadn't taken off. So again, we were negotiating in a space that we didn't really quite understand. However, that was happening at a time of economic duress. So many people in the country were unemployed that Obama had to extend unemployment. Um, simultaneously, we had a housing crash happen. So everything was, the shit was hitting the fan all at once. And here came this thing, which was called unscripted TV. We had our golden moment. But for those that understood union struggles, what I always knew, and I always felt like a little bit of a traitor because I come from the union world, is that this unscripted TV was really just non-union work. Okay, so now here we are today, 2023, this non-union work has spread and it felt, you know, in the beginning, you know, streaming, okay, non-quantifiable, Netflix doesn't tell us their numbers, we don't know how to pay these writers, they're going to get paid the same way that other non-union workers get paid. So what happened, the field got leveled, writers started getting paid the same as unscripted producers. 
Okay, so writers have always been in this world way above us where they got residuals and they were able to buy homes and do all this other stuff. And us unscripted producers were told, you're not worthy of residuals because nobody's ever going to watch your work again. This is throwaway work. It's one and done. But it was always predicated on a lie. The first big show I did was The Osbournes. It was available on a DVD set. So that was just an untrue. So now we've hit this pinnacle moment where streamers have taken over, the way in which we view media has completely changed. Most of us are watching it on the internet. We're finally there. The conversation that started in the 90s, we're finally there. And now it's like the light bulb's going off. Uh-oh, maybe this non-union thing that looked really good and shiny because it gave us all this creative freedom in the beginning is working against us. So I think that this is... Um, a story that has been developing over numerous decades that has finally hit like the fever point. And we're recognizing that um, it's, this isn't, this wasn't, this was never for the artist. This was never for the writer. It, was, it wasn't even for the actor. This was so the studios could continue to make all their money. Yeah. So now the, obviously the interesting part is, you know, um, that you're talking about in these stories, there's a reaction, right? Like there's, um, you know, what at the time of negotiations is what is and for trying to predict what will be. And I think for the first time, um, we're starting to understand, like, maybe we do need to plan for a little bit of the future, hence AI. And so I'm curious, like, you know, based on the past history now, it certainly seems um, I'm not in the writer's um, guild, so I don't, I don't know. Um, but it seems like at least they're trying to account for that in all the ways that they're able to, because certainly studios have, you know, <laughs> through their actions, maybe not through their words, but they're making it declarative that they want this to be a part of their ecosystem, let's just say. And so, you know, I mean, you know, what's your perspective on trying to make the best effort approach to integrate that from the writer's perspective? I think so. I'm in, you know, I'm in community and conversation with a lot of writers who are being affected by this. And many of them feel as though the WGA will win the battle and not the war, meaning that even in their best efforts for negotiation currently, which is to try to get more pay and focusing on the financial aspect, it will still leave less of them employed. Because what we've learned through this decades of technological progress is you cannot stop technological process, pro progress. It's going to continue. So they feel as though um, it is a bit of a day late dollar short, but the fight is still imperative because they're not maybe fighting for what they're going to see the results of in their career. They're fighting for the writers that are coming behind them. So the same way in which the residual fights, those writers that were fighting for residuals at that time may not have seen all the benefits of it. They understood that they needed to fight for who was coming down the, down the line. And that is kind of this moment that, okay, technology will continue to expand we know what the greed of the studios is. We understand their objective. So I think the guild is trying to assuage its members by saying, okay, like within this, we're going to try to get you more money. We're going to address some of the financial inequities. It does not address the technology that will continue to march on. And I think it speaks to a larger issue. I mean, you know, movie studios are 
not doing well, in my opinion, right now. I mean, we're, yeah, you got your big splashy blockbuster films, but if you look at the difference between art and uh, putting things on a conveyor belt, I think to me, that's the question. Do I think that AI is going to replace every, you know, independent film writer and filmmaker? Absolutely not. But do I think it can churn out a hundred scripts of a process show like Law and Order? Yes. So I think that it's going to touch on very specific aspects of writing. It's going to leave less people employed and more people and a smaller group of people in power, which sadly feels like going back to early Hollywood again. Yeah, to me, like, I don't know, I, I have various um, thoughts on it and, and, and at times conflicting, right? Um, to me, I think, a big aspect of it is, um, you know, I wonder, and, and I, I've heard other people kind of talk about this, like at, from the writer's perspective, you know, how can any of these technologies be utilized, right? And instead of um, allowing the studios to dictate it, rather come to the table of here's how we can utilize it and how here's how it works for us, um, which seems to make sense to me. Um, and then, but also just from a larger context, it's it's interesting how essentially we're trying to replace like art almost by its very nature is supposed to like bring out the humanity in all of us and we're offloading that like to 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 machines essentially instead of like utilizing machines for like let's figure out what we as humans don't like to do and offload that stuff right um because like as a sort of a third component in all of this to me is um you know the the promise of in the early days, you know, of the industrial revolution and so forth was, you know, we were at 40 hour work weeks, but they'll get shorter to like 15 hour work weeks so we can all live lives. And I almost look at it now, you know, the idea that like machines will replace us. I, I almost laugh at that notion simply because I look back at the history. I'm like, we have all this new technology and we're, we're working longer hours than before. So like, we'll find a way to, you know, keep ourselves on that gerbil wheel. Um so I, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot there. There's not really a question, but, you know, before I throw out even more, like, I don't know, just your thoughts on any of those aspects or all of them. Well, it reminds me of the meme that I saw where someone says that they never imagined that uh, robots would be making poetry and art while humans did backbreaking labor. And I think it's just that. And if you think of writing has been the most important progress in humanity since the beginning of time, we have studied, you know, the pictorial drawings on caves, like, you know, our sacred test, our, you know, sacred writings, like all of these things. So there's something that's oddly alarming to me that all of a sudden writing's not valuable. Like there's something that's really like anti-human about that whole concept that this thing that has been so valuable literally throughout the history of humans, we're now saying like, oh, a robot can do it. Oh, no, no worries there. It, it doesn't track for me. Like it literally, it's like my brain can't compute it because it's happening concurrently at a time that they're banning books removing um, classic films from uh, streaming libraries, and it's making it more and more difficult for us to access things that have been created before us. So that to me, there's something that's almost slightly insidious about this idea that the writing itself is not valuable, 
while we are limiting the consumption and saying the kids shouldn't read this and oh wow you know they're trying talking about getting rid of uh the what is it the turner classics where all the classic movies that you know kids that want to make films usually watch and study like there's something very insidious about that to me that we're pulling these things away and then saying that this great effort that has been like a block of humanity is now going to be outsourced to com to computers and robots. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's wild to me. And, you know, I was talking with a friend, like when it comes to Turner Classic Movies, I mean, in essence, movies is American history, right? Like we're literally reading that and um, the insidious aspect of it, like the unwritten rule of all these streaming platforms was, you know, anything, anytime, anywhere. And there's, I mean, I kid you not, right? Like, you know, you sort of go on a microcosm with food. I look at it like, you know, Fast 10 came out recently. And, you know, our friend Khalil, him and I were like, well, let's watch these, right? And luckily I have the Blu-rays of these, but I was looking at it and there's no streaming platform you can watch just these movies on. You can watch, you know, Fast 9 um, and you can buy them, sure. But like, as just, you know, you would imagine it's a universal movie. Why are they not on Peacock? Okay, maybe they gave the rights to somebody else. Why is it not on Max or Netflix? I literally, this is this is like a top ten franchise at this current moment, and you cannot just like go from one to nine and then go in the theater to watch ten without what see you know I mean ostensibly a lot of effort in terms of our conditioning where everything's supposed to be very very simplified. It's crazy to me. I mean, I think we've been bamboozled. You know, I, I said on Twitter the other day, like, I don't know, guys, maybe we should have kept going to Blockbuster, you know, buying books and buying CDs the day they came out. Because the idea that this media that we took for granted would be available, music, film, television would be available being via streaming has now been proven incorrect. And we've got, you can add sociopolitical climate of the, you know, this rising kind of, you know, neocon conservative fascism that's saying that, oh, this is obscene. It's this, it's that. So are we going to, are we going back to McCarthyism? Like where, like, where are we going with this? Like, where are we going with pulling things away and telling people like, oh no, you don't need to watch that. Even if it's something as benign as the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, like it, it, it's it really is wild to me, and that's why like whenever possible, I do try to buy the the physical media. But but even then, it's not always available. And is it odd to you? Like I think about this a lot, and not that I'm endorsing it, but in a weird way, like I don't know, maybe I am, but also trying to cover my ass legally in the sense that uh, like pirating is gonna like save us all in a weird way. And I once again. Like you know? Yeah, once again, it's but that's the thing. So it becomes, and now we're going back to the dark web. We're going back to, you know, people always find a way. Okay, so that's that's the thing that if you start limiting what we can have access to, it creates a black market for it. No matter what the it is, and we know that pirated movies have been popular forever. I mean, all you gotta do is go to the hood. You can find the DVD man. He's always been there. You know. And uh, if you go into other places where the internet isn't as available, then you know that people are still very much dependent upon watching their films on something physical, right? So I think pirating is going to grow. I think that um, people are going to go back to burning things and sharing them with their friends. Like, I think that art always finds a way to survive and it will unfortunately i think that the studios will yet again cannibalize themselves the same way that the radio that the music industry did 
when it wanted to get rid of all the, you know, they were making so much money off of CDs anyway, but now they just make all the money off of streaming and the artist doesn't make any money. So I think that we're going to see a shift. Kids are actually interested in analog again. They never got an opportunity to experience the joy of going to a record store the day that an album came out and reading the liner notes. So I think that in the same way in which some of these other things become cyclical, we will see a cycle of there being interest in holding something in your hand and having it as your own and building your own library. Yeah, and I, to me, I mean, I, I mean, like just the simplicity of downloading too, right? Because I mean, I think about it this way, right? We're talking about Turner Classic Movies. One of my favorite movies is uh, On the Waterfront. And like, to me, like to live in a world where that didn't exist, I would definitely, I don't know, like I definitely, you know, luckily I do own it, but I'm just saying if I didn't, then I would be like, all right, I want to see that damn movie. Oh, okay, it's available on this pirated link. Great, now it's mine and I'll, you know, put it on my hard drive and that's it, you know? And it's just... Yeah, it, it it's just so weird how, and you know, certainly there's much smarter people than me, like like an, a Simon Sinek or an Adam Grant that talk about like bad profit, the idea that yeah you, you can get your money short term, but the idea of a company is to stay in business ideally, not to like, you know, <laughs> stay in business for ten years and then poof disappear. So it's it's wild to me. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I feel like the studios are cutting off their nose to spite their face. To me, honestly. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with Adam Grant. Like, it's like, now what, like you're making money at what cost these, these mergers, there's just so many things that are happening in uh, media right now. We're getting closer and closer to monopolies, which I thought that we had outlawed. Um, I do think that we will see and reach a, a tipping point. And my concern is that, um, we, if we find some solutions before the next generation of artists gets discouraged by what's happening currently. Yeah, let, let me get your perspective on this. So my theory, like when it comes to indie movies, right? Like everyone wants the, the, the hit, the guaranteed hit and so forth. So you go for the IP grab. But, you know, we, we can look at as recently as The Flash not hitting, right? I mean, you have nostalgia there. You have IP recognition, like, come on. You know, it's a superhero movie. It's been advertised like I can't walk anywhere, you know, for the past, like, you know, even three months without like seeing something about the Flash and yet it tanked. Um, and to me, when, when it comes to all of it, I don't know. I, I just think it's a laziness on the side of marketing to not find correct audiences as far as the indie movies. Because I think, you know, when I talk with various people, they're like, oh, that movie sounds so interesting. I've never heard of it because they're not reaching, you know, and it's just they like you're talking about the conveyor belt of, well, we've made a movie um, based on the data that everyone should love. And we're going to market it the same way that everyone should love. And then boom, it goes. And it's like, you know what? You, to me, it's like you got to pick and choose. You, you have to pick and choose. You have to read the room. Um, we're coming out of a, a number of very tumultuous years. And, and we're a country that's divided right now. So I think the... What I believe the big studios are um, doing wrong, if I dare say, is trying to appeal to everyone. So if you look at the way in which television has evolved, television got very niche. So television just says, look, I'm, re I'm looking to reach this specific demographic, and if I do that, I won. Film seems to be very hesitant to work in that aspect. So I think they're trying to get a very large market, and in doing so, they miss the mark. Often. So an independent film usually knows what it is, who it is, who they're trying to reach and what the story is that they're trying to tell. 
what the challenge for independent filmmakers is they don't have the marketing machine that the studios have. But the studios are only going to use that marketing machine to try to hit everyone. I think they may have a challenge when they continue to miss. I like Flash as an example, but it's been happening more and more. They keep thinking they have these blockbuster hits on their hand and people are looking to connect with the characters that they see. Yeah, and uh, something interesting, I don't I don't know, I can't assess like how true it is or not, but I, th I heard a pretty interesting theory on TikTok uh, about this idea that part of the reason like that, like blockbusters used to be more of a novelty, right? You know, you would get four or five maybe every summer. Now it's like every week you've got two um, just in the same weekend. And especially like bringing back to the idea of inflation, the economy and so forth. I mean, movie tickets have never been higher. And granted, I do appreciate each each um, movie theater like AMC has their A-list, Cinemark has their thing. So there is a way to do that. But I also look at it from families like, what are you going to get, like six different subscriptions for you and your family? Like, that's not going to work because, um, you not unless you're seeing like that many movies every single week, it's not going to justify itself. So I don't know. Do you think that's a, a plausible enough explanation, at least to one of the factors? So where, where did we start our conversation with food and the economy and what's happening? Like my brother has, you know, two children. They went to go see The Little Mermaid. It was a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> now they are a you know upper middle class family they make you know decent money they can afford to spend a hundred dollars on a film but it shouldn't take a hundred dollars to go see a disney movie is my point so yes i think that we have to take all of that into consideration you get your tickets you want to buy a little bit of popcorn and a drink you might have to also pay for your parking if you're on a date, you're out, you're out 50 to $60, like right away. Everybody cannot afford to do that often. So now your audience has to pick and choose what's worth it to them. What's really going to resonate with that? Because now it's not like, oh, I'm just going to go to the movies because it's hot outside. Going to the movies is a damn investment. It really is. And um, and also, too, speaking of like the division of stuff, like it's, it's wild to me. I don't think there's any like critic that I, you know, have a pretty good track record with, you know, in, in the sense, like, I, I don't know, maybe back in the day, you feel differently about this, but like, there could be enough critics where I'm like, oh, this person said it, and I'm vibing with their overall sensibilities. So I'm going to trust their judgment and go see this movie. Whereas now it's like, you know, before maybe it was like an 80%, we had like an overall overlap. Now there's no critic, I barely probably have a 40% overlap with, you know, and so it's like, I guess the only way I'll find out is if I go see it for myself. And and again, I'm because of my AMC A list, I'm able to and stuff like that. But I understand that's not, I mean, it's if nothing else, it's a time investment and not everyone has that luxury. So I understand for me, and part of it, the justification is I work in this business. So, you know, it's like part of work, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just guess, you know, do you think like, yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you view that? Like where, where there's a, such a divide a, just in terms of how critics are rating stuff, but then also, you know, you see the typical, like, Rotten Tomatoes has it at this, but critic audiences have it at this, and it's like, nobody's listening to anybody anymore. You just hit the nail on the head. So, to me, the disparity between Rotten Tomatoes, like, is the most, like, I sometimes don't even look at Rotten Tomatoes until after I've seen the film, because the critics say one thing, the audience says something else, 
And you can feel bamboozled either way. I have found that I tend to go towards what the audience says, to be honest, because I don't know, you know, the critics are going to be influenced by, you know, the, did they get to go to con? Did, where did they see it? Were they at Sundance? And all of these other things where I'm, I'm Joe Schmo. I don't even have the, the AMC A plus, which I probably should, right? I'm paying full, full price to see a film. So I kind of care more about what the people that paid to see the film think at this point, to be honest, because I think that the rest of it is just being a bit watered down. Yeah, and that like for me, it's it's always interesting. Like with critics, there's never a framing mechanism. So like when I talk about movies, a I always only try to recommend movies that I really like, and if I don't like it, then I try to really examine what didn't work about it to me because I don't want to just be negative. Um, but I, but in the reviews of movies that I, I like, I always say like, if your sensibilities are this, then I think you will like it. I never say like, you know, it's great. Go see it, blah, blah. I, I try to really frame it in that way. So, so, you know, for example, no hard feelings very much for me, you know, people like blockers, super bad or fist fight. If those movies are like what you like, then I think you will like no hard feelings. If not, no, go see it. It's not for you. You know, just because I liked it doesn't mean you will. So I, I don't know. I think there's that missing element, unfortunately. In the way in which we consume critique also. So like, where are we getting our critics from? Are we following somebody on TikTok? Are we reading the, you know, film critic in the New York Times? Like, where is that coming from? I think it all kind of skews who you trust and why and how you trust them. Yeah. How do you view TikTok? Because it seems like um, a lot of people, like to me, what's so great about it, unlike any other social media that I'm aware of, it is interest-based. And I love that. And like, there's friends of mine that like pop in on TikTok and I'm like, I don't want to follow you. You know, like you, you, whatever you're posting, I'm not interested in. This is the first social media platform that I get to just enjoy. And like, it finds me and I love it, you know? I will say that I was very surprised um, by how much I enjoy TikTok. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I've been, I, you know, I've been on social media since MySpace. I did Friendster. I mean, you know, we we just go through the friends that we've had through all the phases of social media. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm old. I'm out of it. Uh, when I was interviewed for my viral video, uh, what I said was I was most surprised that a middle-aged woman like myself was found a welcoming space. So I thought TikTok was for young people. I thought it was for kids that could dance. And it's so much more. It's literally anything that you can imagine that you have interest in, it's there. You know, you want to talk about screenwriting, it's on TikTok. You want to talk about gardening, it's on TikTok. I've been trying to find the perfect chocolate chip cookie recipe for two years. I find other people looking for the perfect chocolate chip recipe. <laughs> like, so that I think is really unique. And the fact that it's just videos allows you to feel as though you're interacting with those people that you follow on a much different level. Like, you know, I remember when we were all blogging and we read these intimate details about each other's life. And some of the times you never even see their faces. So there's something, there's a dimensional quality about it that really kind of makes you feel like, I don't know, you're in the break room at work with them when you pop in and watch these videos. And that's what I think I love the most. Yeah, and to me, even from, like, I was, I can't say, like, I was there from the beginning because um, I would be musically, but, like, when when TikTok, like, at the start of, even just a little bit before the pandemic, I was kind of already on it. Um, and to me, 
it just felt like, oh, you got to put an effort, right? So it's no longer like you'll just Photoshop your your photo and put up on Instagram and put up this view or like, you know, tweet something out and call it it. Like you, you have to put yourself on camera. And if you're awkward, it's going to show. If you're trying to like sell something, it's going to show, you know, now the, the like the facade of it all just, it, it was gone. And you could, you know, some people, of course, edit their videos, but it's the ones that like, even if they're edited, like just the, the less refined they are, it seems to resonate because it's like, we're, we're all just having fun here, you know? And I think that has been a welcome evolution of social media from the super curated, you know, slick kind of Instagram content that Instagram became famous for into this other space. I watched a video. There's a guy that does Trader Joe hauls, right? I like food. So I watch his Trader Joe hauls and he kind of been missing an action for a while. And he popped up and did a video and was just honest about the fact that, you know, it's been gray in Los Angeles. The sun's finally out, but it was gray for like six months. And then it took a toll on his mental health and he became Burklimp and then actually started a little bit. Big, huge six foot three guy who was saying that the fact that anybody cared, the fact that anybody noticed that he hadn't posted meant so much to him because he's in LA trying to be a content creator on his own and he doesn't have family. And it's in those moments that you realize it really is people connecting with people. Um, and that, you know, I'm kind of anti-crying on social media with those sort of my own personal issues. But in that instance, it felt so genuine and real that while someone thought that they were going to be doing their, you know, slick content, that some really motion came out and he could have easily just scrapped it and gave us a Trader Joe haul. But instead he gave us his awkward, vulnerable self. Because it's you and 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 so forth, I want to, you know, I'd be remiss to not ask you about this whole submarine aspect of it all. <laughs> um so to me the, the 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 fascinating story is less i mean the story itself is wild but seeing the story beneath the story like people's reactions to it and so forth that to me is the real story aspect of it that's where i'm like looking and trying to understand people's psychology of why are people saying this or you know the one people are calling for like you know now's the time for respect you know don't make jokes and then it's like, okay, I get it. But why are you so triggered by these when you don't have to look at them, number one? And also, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, right or wrong, laughter can sometimes be a way of dealing with something that's quite uncomfortable. Um, and at the end of the day, like none of us had control over any of it. So I don't, I don't know. So yeah, I just, it, it was a wild story. So I, I, I want to hear your perspective on all of this because I'm, I'm sure you'll have an interesting one. While, right. But so here's the thing. Not that I know a lot of billionaires, okay? I, I do know two. Um, but what I do know about really wealthy people is that wealth is insular and people like to feel alive. So what happens is most wealthy people I know, even if they don't have the bees, are thrill seekers and chasers. And, they, and it continues to mount up because they like to taunt death, if you will, to feel alive. Like, that's the thing. You, you, and we've seen it in films and we've heard about the, you know, the extravagant insurance policies these people have to take out on their life because they want to go fucking swimming with crocodiles and all this other BS. So I think it's an intersection of two things. We're talking people 
can't afford to buy groceries. Eggs are $7, you know, for a dozen. And you're talking about some rich people spent 250000 to get in the back of what looked like a minivan to go look at the wreck of a Titanic. Like the optics alone, although it was tragic, were also fucking hilarious. I'm sorry, hopefully I can curse. Like there was something so ironic about the whole thing. And... It, it looked like a grift. And I think those of us that are familiar with grifts and grifters like kind of know a grift when you see it. So, okay, they have been successful for a while, but that thing was going to come to an end. There's only so many times you're going to be able to go to the depths of an ocean and a handmade contraption with an actual video controller. The jokes wrote themselves. They just we didn't really have to do much work. They wrote themselves. So is it tragic to think that the tragedy to me was in the 19-year-old? Because if a rich guy wants to risk his life on some bullshit, so be it. That has nothing to do with me. That's not my goose, not my jar, and not my problem, to be honest. Like, I'm living in real-world problems. I'm living with gentrification and the exploding price of inflation and trying to afford groceries. I'm not having those types of problems. I don't live in a world where I have to go risk my life to feel alive. I'm black in experience. So I, to me, I hate to say it, but I think that the you touched upon it. The jokes, the memes, and we had some of the best ones I've seen in a long time were more so indicative of people trying to soothe themselves as they look at their own reality while trying to understand a reality that's so completely far-fetched from their own. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I think the bigger tragedy will be the aspect of if nothing is learned from this. And what I mean by that is this is a prime example of cost-cutting, you know? And we talked about it in terms of the studios, you know, that it does have life and death consequences because it affects the lives of people and their ability, as we've been talking about, to like buy food. And, All what about that? <laughs> right. And yet, like, but it, but it's 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 more of an existential thought, um, you know, thought exercise, you know, because it's it's hard to like really put yourself in those shoes. Whereas this, like, the example of it is is right there, right? And so, you know, things were weren't done by the book because of cost, right? Employees, the sub, everything. And it led to death. And yet, I don't think we will ultimately learn the better lesson from this. You've got someone, so I know a few people that work in aeronautics and, you know, I asked them what they thought of Elon Musk trying to, um, you know, give this commercialized space experience. They're like, look, he doesn't care enough about safety. Like, bottom line, that he cares about getting there more than he cares about doing it properly. And that's capitalism these days, right? So I hopefully it'll be learned um, for those who are interested in learning. And that's, to me, the best way that I can put it. Like, you couldn't have paid me to get in that thing and go to the depths of the ocean. The same way you couldn't pay me to get in any of Elon's SpaceX mobiles to go anywhere but across town. Um, because they, people that are, who's, who think that expansively, and I'm trying to say this in a kind word, are usually self-centered, which is to say that they're more 
motivated by the doing than the doing it right or doing it safe or or not cutting costs. So I hope I I think of it in terms of space exploration because now every rich guy in town wants to go to space, right? But how, are we going to regulate it? Are we going to make sure that we don't see the disaster? Because I'm still scarred by watching the um, government one that went up and exploded. Are we going to have to see five examples of not doing it right before someone gets it right? Or are we going to pull these you know, people in and kind of regulate what they're doing? Well, the, the, the more... I, I, for me, the the aspect of it that I look at is more of like cars, right? Um, you know, especially as we get into self-driving cars and stuff like that. Um, I look at it, you know, certainly um, the medical industry, right? We're thinking about operate, like as we get into operating things that were never possibly before being able to be operated on, right? Um, so I, I do look at it like from that perspective. And, and NASA is really interesting to me because, um I remember reading, uh, you know, the, the aspect of it, like when the when the first kind of um, accident happened, you know, someone raised an alarm and afterwards, yes, at, you know, it happened and they kind of looked back at it and assessed the, the, the situation itself, but they didn't change the culture in the sense of, okay, well, if someone has, if someone is raising an issue and like waving the flag, if something's going to be wrong, they still were very much like, no, 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 F you, shut up. And that's what led again. And so until that aspect of it is the one that's fixed of like, hey, instead of like belittling someone and calling them a naysayer because they have safety concerns, maybe like let's have a protocol in place to really listen to it and go through the thing. And yeah, I, I, I for me, I'm, I'm far less concerned. Like, yeah, billionaires will billionaire go to space if you want. You take the risks. But we're getting in these self-driving cars. Like if nothing else, that's my prime example of like, like I. You know, I mean, there's a funny compilation of Elon Musk. I think I, I, I venture to say even like dating back to 2011, where he was like, you know, in six months, we'll have self-driving cars with Tesla. And, you know, it's a compilation like where he basically repeats that through all of you know time until now. And we still don't technically have it. And I think um, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Like we just as we venture into this new age, I think we will very easily find out through AI and all these things. How much harder those things are, you know, a truck driver, cab driver, someone who's like, um, you know, a housekeeper, right? We think that these are menial jobs, mindless, anyone can do it. And yet we can't program AI to be able to do that. Right? Like, I, I, I don't know. Am I incorrect in thinking that? You're absolutely correct. And I think that that's the irony, right? So the, again, the fact that AI is being used to solve non-problems, okay? Like we don't need to replace writers. That's not been a problem for anyone, okay? Instead of how can we use it to solve some of our real problems? Um, you know, self-driving cars, I would have, it's, self-driving cars to me, like my dad was in the transportation industry growing up sound a lot like subways and trolley cars and things that already exist. Like, did you know, so I think that we get romanticized by the idea of where technology is going to take us. And then the reality is it's like, oh, we're going to put something on a rail that's going to take a lot of people from point A to point B. That's called a bus. Like, some of these things already exist. That's a non-problem. Like, that's not an issue that needs to be solved. 
I just wish technology could focus on some of the problems that we that could use solving. Can you figure out how to make housing out of recycled plastic bottles so that we can get people off the street? Like, can AI solve some of these issues that are actually plaguing humanity instead of identifying a non-problem and then saying, oh, I think I can solve that. It's wackadoodle. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And, and, and there's this alleviation of responsibility too. Like um, one of the examples that I heard certainly um, I'm not against like blind resumes, but at the end of the day, like, let's take someone like you, right? Let's say you're hired at the end of the day, you're still going to be a black woman coming in on Monday. And unless you deal with that aspect of it in terms of the culture, you know, the racism or whatever else is going to persist. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think that we have to um, embrace diversity. Honestly. Say that again. Embrace diversity. So, you know, I have an Arabic name, a black woman, and I have a weird voice. So I have done a number of interviews over the phone where people were honest, like, I had no idea who was going to show up. But when I show up, I'm me. I'm a black girl from East Oakland. So, like, that doesn't change it. And I'm also, like, really upfront about this is what you get when you get me. You get a whole black person. I'm going to give you, like, my real point of view. I don't say that I represent my entire race, but I do represent who I am very well, right? So removing that removes the opportunity for me to be me, which I think would be a miss, right? When I'm hiring from a, from a show, I want, a, I want a mixed, I want a mixed bag of nuts. I want some men. I want some women. I want, you know, as many races as I can get. I want as many voices as I can to add to the depth of the story that I'm telling. And I don't necessarily think that blind resumes are going to solve that problem because at the end of the day in entertainment, let's be honest, most of the time people are just hiring who they know. This is true. Um, certainly like, um, you know, the conservative talking point is, well, this is what happens when you hire woke or they'll say, you know, like hire based on that. And th the funny part to me is companies that are more diverse are more profitable. Like th th there's statistics to prove this. And 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 so it's just wild to me in, in that way of how, resistant to to it all we are um i don't know it's, it's, it's wild brand of capitalism dictates that we have a permanent lower class and the american dream is somewhat predicated on making sure that that's not you right so you know we're a country that was built on exploited labor and part of the quote unquote american dream is like to be possibly mediocre and still get the best out of it so i think that our country is kind of fighting against this idea that you could be, you know, my dad was a bus driver. He owned a house and had a stay-at-home wife. Those days are over. They're done, right? But I think that people still want to believe that they don't necessarily have to reach the height of something to be able to live comfortably, Okay, I want to believe that my friends want to believe that I don't feel like I should have to be a studio executive to buy a home. Right. But studio executives might be scared that too many people are coming from them. So I think there's like a weird boogeyman in the closet idea that makes people believe that other people need to have less in order for them to have more. And it affects the way in which they hire the way, you know, these creeping fears about, oh, more diversity is going to put more of us out of work. Men are still running. What are we talking about? <laughs> like, so I yeah. think it's like a boogeyman in the closet issue.
Yeah. And I, I mean, I think th there's a meme that I saw, um, you know, it's the adage of uh, money won't buy you happiness. And then someone's responding, listen, I understand money won't buy me happiness, but I'm you're making me decide between rent and food. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... Well, right. and it's always, you know, people, oh, money won't buy you happiness. But well, you have obviously never been broke. Because if you're broke, you know that a little bit of money would buy you a little bit more joy. So I think that we have to kind of reset and look at where the world is. This is a very expensive world. I moved to Los Angeles on a hope and a dream with a rental car and a $300 check, okay? My first apartment was, and I made a lot back then because I wanted to live by the beach. I think it was like $775. Now you can't get into an apartment for less than $2,000. I used to be able to work six months a year and, you know, write and do yoga for the other six months or travel and hang out with my friends and shop at the 99 cent store. Those days are over. So I think that it has become more and more challenging for creative people to even get their foot in the door. And so when I hear these conversations where people who are established, if not wealthy, continuing to gatekeep and create barriers for the younger generations, it really angers me. Let me, um, as a final question, I want to get your thoughts on, because like, you know, people look at, oh, art, you know, uh, that's not a real job. Like just all the cliches, right? You know, in schools, art is one of the first things to be cut. And yet... You know, people are upset. The, the first thing they're upset about is, oh, oh, this show got canceled or got, you know what I mean? Like it's their go-to thing to watch, to, to, to get them through a shitty day or whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's just this weird dichotomy of art is meaningless. And yet it's the thing that people look to most for any sort of, I don't know, hope or whatever it may be. So... I say this. I like you know, I come out of the last generation that still had like musical instruments taught as a mandatory class in schools. Okay. So if you went to public school, you had to pick up an instrument in third grade, period. Choose one. You're gonna play it at least until sixth grade, if not longer. Um, if we look at the self-made billionaires, specifically out of my black community, they were all artists and entertainers, all literally, Puffy, Sean Combs, um, Byron Allen, I think, is on his road to be a billionaire. Bob Johnson, who owned BET, Jay-Z, Oprah Winfrey, Rihanna. Are we seeing a trend here? So were it not for art, many of us would have also been eliminated from wealth. Um, not just that, I think it's bullshit. I think that we were fed kind of a trough of lies in terms of the importance of art so that we could be quote unquote worker bees. And we thought that that would be the path to success. And a lot of kids were taught to, you know, disregard your artistic passions because it's not going to be able to earn you a living. That's completely untrue. And if at no other time in our life that was proven to be untrue, it was the pandemic when we were all stuck at home watching Joe Tiger <laughs> texting and tweeting each other. Oh my God, did you see this? What got us through our roughest times? Entertainment. Yeah. And certainly even like dating back to like the 1930s, right? You know, I mean, just movies in that time is escapist. You know? Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's 
always been, it's we, there's an admiration. Artists are here to set the world on fire. So some of us will only work a nine to five. Some of us will work manual labor. Some of us will work trades. Some people just have to stay home and watch television is the way that I always say. But those people get to expand their horizons and live a greater, richer life through the art in which they consume. So it's important for the artist as well as the consumer of art that this continues. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, is there uh, any final message you would like to share about? It could be anything. You could throw me a curveball. I don't care. Um, and also feel free to plug anything that you would like to plug. Same. Keep art alive. For anyone who has any creative musings, it's never too late. And um, it's really imperative that we take a look at what's happening right now in terms of technology. Don't let technology replace your voice. And um, I don't know. You can follow me on TikTok. I'm pretty rabbit, R-A-B-I-D, like a rabbit dog. And um, yeah, and eventually I'll have a book out, but it doesn't have a title yet. So stay tuned for that. Well, thank yes. you so much. Thank you, Phil. This has been such a pleasure.